in one of his books uh, author and pastor Lee Strobel talks about a baptism service that they were having in the church that he was serving at and uh, people were instructed who were being baptized as they came to the front to take a little piece of paper and and on that paper to to write down uh, specifically some of the sins that they were aware of that they had committed against the Lord and as they came up to the platform they were to go towards the wooden cross that was on that platform and take a little pin and pin that uh, piece of paper to the cross symbolically enacting out what the scriptures declare that our sins were nailed to the cross and then come to one of the pastors to be baptized he then shared this testimony of one of the ladies there who wrote this she said i remember my fear in fact it was the most fear i remember in my whole life i wrote as tiny as i could on that piece of paper the one word abortion i was so scared someone would open the paper and read it and find out it was me i wanted to get up and walk out of the auditorium during the service the guilt and the fear were that strong when my turn came i walked towards the cross and i pinned the paper to the cross i was directed to a pastor to be baptized he looked me straight in the eye and i thought for sure that he was going to read out aloud this terrible secret i had kept from everybody for so long there's probably not any of us in this congregation who cannot at some time say have, have identified with, with that feeling of guilt and condemnation maybe our fear was not as strong as hers ever and all probability this sin would not be abortion that we would write on that piece of paper maybe there might even be no sin involved but all of us know that nagging sense of living out under that cloud of feeling that we haven't measured up in some way and accompanying that is that vague free floating anxiety about the consequences that might be associated with that these feelings can come up from within us sometimes all of a sudden sometimes they can be triggered by other people's words including sermons and they almost always have their source in the enemy because the bible tells us in revelation that he one of his names is that he is the accuser of god's children my question to you this morning is when that happens to us what would you say what would you say to yourself to others if that's appropriate and above all what will we say back to the enemy of our souls who accuses us with guilt and condemnation i will tell you this human words alone will not be sufficient either to bring true comfort to your own soul or to defeat the enemy that same book of revelation that names satan as the accuser of the children of god also says that we are to overcome him by the blood of the the lamb and by the word of our testimony and at least a part of that word of our testimony is god's word and god's truth and not the least the truth that we have come to this morning in our study of the book of romans we have come to what people some people have called the great eight romans chapter 8 the, the centerpiece of this whole letter in a sense and today and so appropriately on pentecost sunday we are beginning our study of the eighth chapter of romans and it begins with these words therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in jesus christ and you know we do not appreciate sometimes and feel the full force of the incredible gift contained in those words no condemnation 
because we perhaps do not feel like that woman did that day, the full force of the sins that would condemn us apart from Christ. We've been learning in the book of Romans that the fundamental sin is the sin of exchanged glory. Exchanging the glory of God, all that God is, not recognizing it for what it is, and preferring something else instead. And perhaps no other author or pastor in the last 50 years has thought about this more and read about this and written about this more than John Piper. And in one of his sermons in, in, in Romans, he, he spells it out for us. What it means to sin against the glory of God. What is the sin of exchanged glory? He says, the glory of God is not honored. The holiness of God is not reverenced. The greatness of God is not admired. The power of God is not praised. The truth of God is not sought. The wisdom of God is not esteemed. The beauty of God is not treasured. The goodness of God is not savored. The faithfulness of God is not trusted. The promises of God are not relied upon. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The grace of God is not cherished. The presence of God is not prized. And the person of God is not loved. And add the word infinite before every one of those. And you begin to get the measure of the condemnation of the sin of exchange glory. No, and it is against these sins that he says no condemnation. If you would only allow ourselves to feel the full force of that. The sin of exchanging the glory of an infinite God. That we might be able to enter fully into the incredible joy of this statement. There is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. <laughs> what happened to that woman, by the way, as she walked up, all those fears melted away. She said, God said to me, I love you. It's okay. You've been forgiven. I felt so much love for me, a terrible sinner. It's the first time I ever really felt forgiveness and unconditional love. It was unbelievable, indescribable. And she could experience no condemnation as unbelievable and indescribable because she felt something of the force of this sin before. Now today, we're not having a baptism service. There is no wooden cross. You're not going to be asked to write anything on a list of paper. But I do want you to stop for a few moments. And I want you to think about whatever it is that is perhaps creating within you feelings of guilt, and condemnation. Slight or intense. Due to real or imagined shortcomings. Coming from within or without. And bring into that situation. These words. There is no condemnation. And last night at the communion service, one of our elders came up to me and said, make sure tomorrow when you preach, when you get to this point, tell them something. He said, because all through your sermon, he said, especially in the early part, a specific sin was just being brought back to my mind. And I couldn't even listen. I had to keep pushing that away. So he said, ask how many people there were in the congregation. And one by one, hesitantly, so many hands began to go up. So I want to pray for a few moments right now. Because I want you to think specifically of the guilt and the condemnation, slight or large, and I want you to push it aside. As you, as because Paul will take the rest of this chapter to buttress and support this statement, there is no condemnation. You know why? Because sometimes this can come upon you with tremendous force. 
And it can last for a while and we need to know how to do battle. And so I'm going to ask you to follow me carefully as we work our way through the Apostle Paul's argument in Romans chapter 8. Because he will, but the whole chapter buttresses this one statement. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Join with me as we pray. Father, in Jesus' name I want to come now and take a hold of every single device of the enemy by which he is going to be plaguing the minds of some people in this congregation. So harassing them with the memory of some specific transgression. And I pray, Father, that you will in Jesus' name just move that aside. We take authority over all of the forces of darkness. We declare to to the principalities and the powers that this room is sanctified space. This is a place of worship. This is a place of adoration. This is a place of the elevation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are a people who are in Christ. You have no authority, no hold over us. We are a people who are not under condemnation. And therefore we refuse and resist your attempts at this time. And Father, we offer our minds and our hearts to you today. May we be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Give us instruction. Give us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, why is there no condemnation? Paul says there is no condemnation because through Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit of life, and the law here refers to the binding authority or the power. He says a liberation has taken place. The binding authority and the power of life in the spirit has set you free from the binding authority and the power of the law of sin and death. He goes on to then say that what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did. What was the law powerless to do? Last week as Mike walked you through Romans chapter 7, you learned that even though the law was holy, even though the law was good, even though the law was spiritual, the law was unable to do what it was supposed to do and that was to give us life. The kind of power to live out the law, the kind of life that would assure us of eternal life. Now the reason the law was, was, couldn't do that was not because the law was bad, but because it was weakened by the sinful nature. In the NIV translation that you're reading, it says sinful nature. The word in the original language is simply flesh. And it doesn't mean this thing that we call flesh. Rather, the flesh is the built-in disposition that is in all of us to live contrary to God. That within us which bears the marks of corruption and decay because we're all tainted by the fall in Adam. It is this flesh, it is because of this inbuilt disposition that the law, even though it was good and holy and spiritual, was unable to give life. Now what God, what the law could not do, Paul says God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering and so he condemned sin in the flesh. God took upon himself the form of a human being, not just the external appearance, but really the incarnation, and therefore he entered the very domain in which the sin found its power. The the flesh, the weaknesses of the flesh. But it was only the likeness of sinful flesh because he himself was totally free from sin. And he came as a sin offering. God took all of the sin that we had committed, those sins of exchange glory, whatever their specific manifestations were, and they were all put upon Jesus Christ. And on the cross, in his body, in his death, it was sin that was condemned. (laughs) That's why there's no condemnation for you and for me. Because he, the sins in him were condemned. And even more remarkably it says, and all this happened in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Remember the law couldn't do? The law could not give us. Because we couldn't keep the law. It only multiplied sin. (laughs) 
But he says in this great exchange that took place, our sin was placed upon Jesus and condemned there, and His righteousness, His perfect, flawless obedience to the Father was credited to you and me. And we learned that earlier on in Romans chapters 1 to 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, and the only way that statement can be true is if it is the righteousness of Christ Himself. He's the only one who fully met the righteous requirements of the law. Now this last phrase that says, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit, is not a condition for earning no condemnation. Rather it is a declaration of who we are in Christ. Remember what we learned in Romans chapter 5, our principle of solidarity, that we're all by nature in Adam, and that is the sphere of sin, death and condemnation. But through our union with Christ in His death and His resurrection, we have been taken over into a whole new realm that is overflowing with grace and peace. Well, Paul is continuing that description, only he gives it two new phrases. Those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. And it is because of this, says Paul, there is no condemnation. You have moved from the left-hand side to the right-hand side. There has been a transfer of realms. Sin was judged in Christ. His righteousness was given to you. You are now among those who live according to the Spirit because the Spirit of life is in you. The binding power and the authority of, of the Spirit lives within you. And in the next verses, Paul is going to continue to amplify this. Because he wants to make sure that we have an absolutely firm grip on this truth that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Because then and only then will we be effective in our battle against the, the crippling effects of guilt and condemnation. So he says, those who live according to the flesh or sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. And the best way for me to illustrate what these verses are saying is to actually put it again in the form of the same, same diagram, because it's all the same idea that's being carried right through. One group of people Paul described are those according to the flesh, and the other group those according to the spirit. And he describes these groups in various phrases. On the left hand side, those according to the flesh, he says, first of all, they have their mind set, or literally, they are minding what the flesh desires. The natural disposition of their lives is not Godward or outward, but inward and selfish. They therefore devote the primary energies, the bulk of their energies and their resources to the pursuit of power and pleasure and possessions and popularity and prestige. When they are hurt, their primary focus is on how to get back and get even. Issues of forgiveness are not important in their lives. Bearing and nursing grudges are the natural way of living. They are not particularly aware of the needs of people around them. Their focus is neither Godward nor outward. It is almost exclusively inward. That's the mind of the flesh or the minding what the flesh desires. Their basic disposition of their life is hostility towards God. They are not submissive to God. And then here come two dramatic statements. Not only are they not submissive to God, they cannot do so. They cannot please God. There is an innate inability to submit to God. This is what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity or total inability. 
This doesn't mean that every human being outside of Christ is as evil as human beings possibly can be. It doesn't mean that there is no memory of good or no trace of good in them. It doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean is that every person apart from Christ is utterly in the grip of the power of sin. And that this power extends to all of their faculties. Therefore, they can only order their lives in a way that is ultimately hostile and displeasing to God. Whether the exterior is militantly hostile or the exterior is clothed in religion is beside the point. On the other side, he said, are those who are according to the Spirit. He said, what are they? They are minding what the Spirit desires. The natural disposition of their lives. Now, or supernatural I should say. Their primary disposition and orientation of their lives is Godward. They are concerned about the glory of God. They have a healthy awareness of their own sin. Because of that, there is a desire to pursue holiness in their lives. There is an increasing awareness of the needs of people around them. Increasingly their focus is Godward and outward and not primarily inward. That's what it means to mind what the spirit desires. Now does this mean that these people do not struggle with the flesh? Does this mean that there are no struggles for us in terms of the lure of pleasure and power and possessions and popularity? Do we not sometimes feel the urge for revenge? All those kinds of things. Of course, of course that's true. But that's not the primary disposition of their lives. That's not the primary focus, which is Godward and outward. Such a mind, he said, is life and peace. In contrast to death and hostility to God. This peace does not mean uh, the kind of peace that knows no struggles in life. Nor does it even mean the peace of mind. It is primarily the peace with God that we have. That we are not in hostility towards Him. And therefore... Therefore, our spirits are alive and there is an assurance of eternal life. It is what the law could not do, give life, God did through His own Son. Now, those opening words, it says, those who live according to the sinful nature and those who live in according to the Spirit, once again might raise the question in our mind. So, again, I guess we have to do something to earn this. Actually, it's a little bit of a mistranslation. Those two words, focused, translated, lived, are not there in the original. It simply says those who are. Those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the spirit. In other words, this is our condition. If we are in Christ, this is our condition if we are outside of Christ. It is a description of what we are like. You see, the reason why this is so important in our battle against guilt and condemnation is that so often... The feelings of guilt and condemnation come because of our failure in the behavior realm, whether real or imagined, whether in our eyes or somebody else's eyes. And the way we use the sword of the Spirit at times like that is to talk back to the devil. Maybe something along these lines. Yes, yes, I may have failed. Yes, I may be guilty. But it's what John Piper calls gutsy guilt. It's to look at the enemy in the face and say, yes, I may have done that, but that's not who I am. I am in the realm of the Spirit. The law and the power and the binding power of, of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. My primary disposition is towards the things of God. I love the glory of God. I long to become a holy person. I am increasingly focusing my life on serving other people. I am not hostile towards God. I am submissive to God. 
I am therefore heading for eternal life and I am at peace with God. So take your condemnation and stuff it. That's talking back to the devil. That's using this truth in the midst of warfare against the enemy when he accuses us. Now Paul takes all of this and applies it specifically to the Romans. Okay, so far he's been developing the theological framework. He said, and as for you Romans, because he's writing to an actual group of people. And you Romans, he said, you however are not controlled by the sinful nature. You're on the right hand side. You are in the spirit of God. If the spirit of God lives in you. And the word if can equally be translated as since. In fact, Paul says to be a Christian means to have the spirit of God. He states it negatively by saying if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Positively it means uh, you're a Christian, you're united with Christ, the spirit of God living within you. If the spirit lives within you, guess what? You're on the right hand side. You are controlled. You are these kinds of people. He's continuing to hammer away at who we are in Christ. Because that is a fundamental defense against the enemy's accusations of condemnation. Now, he says your body is dead because of sin. That's simply saying that because we are Christians, it doesn't mean we are not going to pay the physical consequences of being part of the sin of Adam. There's no immortality for us as, in the sense that we would never die. We're all going to die one day. The body is dead because of sin. He said, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living within you, which he is if we are Christians, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives within you. So yes, you are going to die one day, but that death is not going to have the last word. You know why? Because the spirit through whom God raised up Jesus from the dead is the spirit that is in you. And if that spirit is in you, guess what? Death will not have the last word. You will also be raised again to life one day. Which, of course, continues the assurance of no condemnation. Because if we are, if the Spirit is within us and eternal life is guaranteed for us and resurrection the other side of death, he says again, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So the first 11 verses of chapter 8 are systematically reinforcing and driving home for us that if we are in Christ, you belong to the right-hand side. You are in the realm of the Spirit, not the realm of the flesh you are at peace with God. You are not hostile to God. The spirit of life is in you and you will be raised from the dead. Now, now comes the question. Therefore, what is our part? Is there no obligation that we have? Are there no responsibilities in terms of continuing to battle with the flesh? Do we just sit back in this assurance that we are in the right hand side? We're okay. We're going to be guaranteed eternal life. The spirit is at work within us. We've been taken away from the realm of the flesh. So Paul gets to that in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers, therefore, because all this is true, because you're already here, not as a means of getting here, because you're already here, you have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Basically, what he says, you need to say no. But if you, according to this, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Yes, we have been taken away from the realm of the flesh. But we're still in that world. We still live. You guys go to work and spend 40 hours a week living amongst a community of people who are largely in that site. The newspapers are inundated with events in a community that's largely on the left-hand side. You yourself are bombarded in radio and television and whatnot with an appeal to give in to those desires to live that way. And even though 
the power of sin has been broken, it can still bite us. You know, I read a very interesting article this past week. It's from the U.S. News uh, of 1999. It says, dead snakes can bite. It says, dead snakes bit five of 35 snake bite victims admitted to the Good Samaritan Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona from June 1997 to April 98. Justin Clough, a 21-year-old, was bitten by the decapitated head of a rattler. He lost part of his right index finger. The head of the snake had been cut off and it still bit the guy. I thought to myself, that's exactly what we are like. Sin has been given a final blow in Christ. Its head has been cut off, but it can still bite. And we don't want to lose index fingers. That's why he says, yes, you are here, but you have an obligation to put to death the misdeeds of the body. And the misdeeds of the body, of course, are all of those things, those actions, those attitudes, that are still contrary to the things of God. That's what the snake bite is. Now notice the partnership here. You do it, but you do it by the Spirit. He says, you put to death by the Spirit the misdeeds of the body. There is a wonderful partnership between us and the Holy Spirit. It's neither all us or neither all the Holy Spirit. We work together. Now what, what does it mean to put to death by the Spirit? Really, those are probably four or five sermons in their own right to unpack that one process. But let me just get you started. Putting to death is a violent picture. It's a warfare terminology. Which means it's going to require weapons. Where else in the Bible are these ideas put together? Warfare, weapon, and spirit. Ephesians chapter 6. And in Ephesians 6, we are told that in this warfare, we are to take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray. And so God's word becomes foundational in putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh. The word of God in Romans chapter 8 is the sword of the spirit to counter the enemy when he heaps guilt and condemnation upon us. There are other portions of the word of God that are the sword of the spirit to fight against those particular temptations, the dead snakes that need to bite us. And really that's what second base is all about. What, what we're doing next week, second base has been rewritten significantly to drive home this concept. What does it mean? How do we access the sword of the spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh? The kind of things we talk about in second base. Uh, what is the difference between trying and training? Uh, what is the difference between knowledge and mind renewal? Moving from tyranny to freedom in the whole issue of things. Why bother with this whole process? And how can we grow together in community? All of this is about putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh and continuing to live as people. And so I just encourage you, if you haven't yet, if you finished first base and you're ready for second base, please, next Sunday from 3 o'clock to 7 o'clock. And if you've taken it before, I'd encourage you to take it a second time because we've really reworked and honed the material specifically for this. And we've just driven home to me again. You are people who are here and you have an obligation to say no to the flesh and to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now the stakes are high too. This is not something we can be casual about. Paul's wonderful repeated assurances that we are in the spirit are not to give us a casual approach to sin. For verse 13 says, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. Now, he's not saying you've got to do this in order to earn your salvation. What he's saying is, if you don't have this kind of hostility towards sin, if you're not alert about these dead snakes that are all around us that can still bite us, if you're, at, if you're at a happy peace in this world, then you need to ask yourself, 
which circle you're really in, is what he's really saying. Because being in this circle, one of the marks of being in this circle is that you are hostile towards the sin. And you are submissive towards God. Is our basic attitude towards the fleshly desires hostility or peace? It's probably a good indication of where we are. Now Paul finishes this whole section by continuing his assurance of no condemnation. And that it is precisely because we are not condemned that we have an incentive to holy living by bringing in this doctrine of adoption. We already looked at many years ago, but here in this context he says, Why all of this is true for those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. If we are heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, how can there be any condemnation? That's his point. He's still driving home the idea. Now, three years ago, I took ten sermons over this specific idea of what does it mean to be children of a heavenly father. The, the basic central concept was we don't have to live in the fear of God in the courtroom with the judge. We have life in the living room with our Heavenly Father. It's a very, very powerful doctrine and its practical application to deal with this issue of guilt and condemnation. And I would encourage you to get those tapes and listen to those to refresh yourself. But I want to remind you of just one issue we looked at in those sermons because it has to do with this issue of putting to death the misdeeds of the body and pursuing holiness and how adoption and no condemnation actually is the appropriate motivation for holiness and not fear. Let me go back to two circles again. Adoption is the key link between justification, which is what Romans 1 to 5 talked about. That is getting right with the Father. And we know we learned we were justified in the language of the law courts. We were redeemed from slavery in the language of the slave market. Uh, we were, uh, our sins were atoned for in the language of the temple. Uh, God's wrath was propitiated, which is also temple language. Uh, accounting language was used to show that God's righteousness had been credited to us. Relational language was used to show that we are reconciled with God. All of that in the first five chapters. Justification is getting right with the Father. Sanctification, which is Romans 6 and Romans 7, is becoming like the Father. But the key link is these verses in Romans 8, which is becoming a child of the Father. The key link between justification, which is getting things right with the Father, and sanctification, which is becoming like the Father, is adoption becoming a child of the Father. And all three are the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts people who are on the left-hand side of the circle of sin, righteousness, and judgment that they need to get right with the Father. It is the Holy Spirit that makes us cry out, Abba, Father. And the more we begin to relate to God as Father, the more love becomes a dominant factor as opposed to fear. The more we come out of the courtroom into the living room, the more we are drawn to become like the Father. And it is, of course, the Spirit of God who continues to make us holy. He is the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. That's how adoption becomes a key link in this process of putting to death. It provides the motivation for putting to death the deeds of the flesh. What happens if you leave out adoption? If you leave out this critical thing, this ministry of the Holy Spirit that makes us cry out, Abba, Father, what happens? We are still justified because we have faith in Christ. So God may no longer be judged, but we still relate to God as Master. He is that. But if He's only that, then you know what happens? Instead of being drawn to become like Him, We are driven. Instead of saying, I want to become like you, Father, it's all I must, I must, I must. But adoption 
that says you are a child of the Father draws you with cords of love. Craig Barnes, who is the author and pastor of National Presbyterian Church in Washington, tells this story. He says, when I was a child, my minister father brought home a 12-year-old boy named Roger, whose parents had died from a drug overdose. There was no one to take care of Roger, so my parents decided they would raise him as if he were one of their own sons. It wasn't even legal adoption, but it was heart adoption. At first, it was quite difficult for Roger to adjust to his new home, an environment free of heroin-addicted adults. He was plunked from here to here. Every day, several times a day, I heard my parents say to Roger, No, no, that's not how we behave in this family. No, no, you don't have to scream or fight or hurt other people to get what you want. No, no, you don't have to do that. We expect you to show respect in this family. (laughs) Meaning, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Keep saying no, Roger. And in time, Roger began to change. Now, did Roger have to make all those changes in order to become a part of our family? No. He was made a part of the family simply by the grace of my father. But did he then have a lot of hard work to do learning to say no? Because he was in the family. You bet he did. It was tough for him to change and he had to work at it. But he was motivated by the incredible love he had received. That's a beautiful picture of what this is all about. We've been taken out of the realm of the flesh into the realm of the spirit. God did what the law could not do by sending his son. Our sin was condemned so you and I are not condemned. We are at peace with God. We are submissive to God. We are minding the things of the Spirit. But there are these dead snakes walking around called the flesh. And we are to fight and put to death the misdeeds of the body. We do it in cooperation with the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God. And we do it all because we already are sons and daughters of the living God. Here are a few points for you to ponder on Pentecost Sunday. As we come to the table of the Lord. Because you know this table. It celebrates no condemnation. This is the. Right over this table of the Lord today. No condemnation. For some of you who are still here. Who have never. Never yet. Committed your lives. Through a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The truths of Romans 1 to 5. Have not become internalized in your life yet. You may be religious, which is why you're here. You may even be a follower of the Christian religion, which is why you're in church. But remember, the law cannot do what God requires. The law cannot meet the requirements of the law in you. Please turn from religion to regeneration by the Holy Spirit. You don't need religion. You need a regeneration. You need a whole new life that only the Spirit of God can give you. And if religion has been characteristic of your life, and you frankly don't even enjoy it, it's not a surprise. It cannot give you what God wants. Maybe today, Pentecost Sunday, you might want to ask the Spirit of God to give you new life within. So that you might be set free from the power and control of the domain of the flesh and come into the domain of the Spirit. Now some of you might think you are here, but if you're honest... Your life is characterized by a mind set on the flesh. To be honest, all of your desires, what you do naturally all the time, is hardly indistinguishable from the world. And all you're resting on is some decision you made umpteen years ago. You might need to examine yourself because you might still be here. And what you need is regeneration, not just reformation. 
Now, if your mind is set on the Spirit's desires, if your longing is for the things of God, but fear, guilt, and self-condemnation are familiar companions, you ask for the Spirit of adoption today. Ask that the Spirit will lead you to be able to experience increasingly cry out, Abba, Father, I am a part of your family. I'm not in the courtroom anymore. I'm in the living room. You're not just my Master and my Savior and my Lord. You're also my Father. And yes, I will gladly learn to say no to the flesh. And for the rest of us, may I encourage you to joyfully persevere in putting to death the misdeeds of the body. Because it's a lifelong task. And may you be sustained by the assurance of no condemnation and a declaration of adoption. As we come to the table of the Lord, I have those who are going to be helping serving it come to the front. And the rest of you just want you to think for a few moments. You know where you are. Four possible categories with respect to the Spirit of God. The table is open for all. It's a table of no condemnation through faith in Christ.